church family, you're finding the book of John, chapter 7. We'll begin to read in verse number 1. This morning I want to speak to you on this subject, living in the will of God. Living in the will of God. John chapter 7, we'll begin to read in verse number 1. I'll invite you to stand, please, all those that can and are able in honor and in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're in John chapter 7, beginning to read in verse number 1. The Bible says these words, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here, and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it and that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Let's pray together. God, we ask your Holy Spirit would open our hearts to receive the truths that are in this text today. God, I do pray for the one that's never responded to the call of the Holy Spirit to be saved. God, I pray your Spirit will convict them today of their sin, Christ's righteousness, judgment that is to come upon them. One day, God, if they die in their sin, God, they'll spend eternity in a place called hell. But God, I pray today, while there's time and the Spirit of God is calling and drawing, they'll choose to turn and receive Jesus to be Lord of their life. And God, I pray for this great example that we see in this text today about how to live in your perfect will. God, I pray these four truths will mark our lives. And God, where there's a disciple that's here this morning that's found lacking, where you see things in our lives that you're not pleased with, God, there's, there's parts of us today that make us unusable. God, I pray your Spirit will convict us and draw us today. And I pray that we'll leave changed and different because we respond to the correcting hand of the Holy Spirit. Have your way in this time. God, I pray you'll be glorified through obedience that takes place during a time of invitation. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Now I invite you again to be seated. John chapter 10, verse 10, the Bible, Jesus says of himself, uh, the thief comes but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And every person has a choice whether they want to experience Satan's worst or Christ's best. Satan's worst is steal, kill, and destroy. Christ's best is spiritual life, but life more abundantly now here upon this earth. Jeremiah chapter 29 and in verse number 11, to an exiled people, who rebelled against the Lord's will and against his word. And now they were suffering judgment in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, sharing God's word, God says, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. God wasn't through with the nation of Israel. He wanted to do something through them. We know it's to fulfill his covenant promise, 
but nationally he wanted to do something in their lives and individually. He wanted to do great and mighty things in the life of every individual that made up the nation of Israel. But to, to follow God's will, you have to know what God's will is. You know, very quickly, I'll just share with you this morning. You might want to write these down, cover your Bible on a piece of paper. But the way to discover God's will, very quickly, is first off by following him. John chapter 10 and verse number 27 tells us that. Then secondly, we have to um, give our life to him completely. John 15 and verse number 5. And then the third thing we have to do is to trust in his word. Psalm 119 and verse 105. And then fourth, we're to seek him in prayer. To seek him in prayer. So number one, again, those are, first off, we have to follow Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You have to be first part of the fold, friend, and that's to repent of sin and trust Christ to be Lord of your life. doesn't matter if you're a member of a church. doesn't matter if you've been baptized. Those things are good and they're, uh, they're, they're, they're necessary spiritually. A baptism is the first act of obedience in the life of a believer. Every individual believer needs to be a part of a local body of Christ. But none of those things matter if you've not first been born again into the family of God, but then you begin to follow Jesus Christ. And then secondly, you have to give your life to him completely. Jesus shared what a picture of that looks like. John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. The branch has abandoned everything to be grafted into the life of the vine. And then the third way we discover God's will is to trust in his word. Psalm 119 and 105, your word is a lamp into my feet. And it's a light into my path. That is, we make no decision, we don't walk in any direction that is not guided by the shining light of God's Word. And then fourth, we seek Him in prayer. Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse number 3. God said again to a, to a people that had been exiled, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And so that's how we can discover God's will but the focus of our message today and from the example we see in these, uh, these 10 verses is how to live out the will of God. It's not enough just to know it, but how, do, how does it become a reality in our lives? How do we respond in obedience daily to what it is that God is calling us to do? In John chapter 13 and verse number 15, we see Jesus being our example in service. Uh, he, after he had washed the disciples' feet, he says, For I have given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. He was telling Peter and the others, this is what it means. No lower form of service, friend, and dirtier form of service than to wash somebody's feet, especially in the day in which they lived. He said this is an example of how to serve. Christ is our example in, in suffering. He's our First Peter chapter 2 and in verse number 21. The Bible says, for, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You, you want to know how it is to suffer righteously? Look to Calvary. See, see the love in the eyes of Christ as he looked upon that crowd that mocked him, spat upon him, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His greatest desire was that God's will be done in his life. He's our example 
in surrender, after Paul lists that, that beautiful picture of what Christ did sitting aside all of the, the things that were his in glory to come to this sin-cursed earth, to take upon himself the form of a bondservant. Philippians 2, 5 says, Let this mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you also. That's our example in surrender. In this passage today, we see you know, that Jesus is our example in how to live the will of God. Christ is our example in all things. But there's, there are four great truths about how Jesus lived out and lived in the will of God. And if you're going to do that, these things have to be reality in your life. Number one, if you want to live in the will of God, you have to recognize satanic opposition. You've got to recognize satanic opposition. Listen, you've got an enemy, and you're always going to have him until you go to heaven. And it's not your mother-in-law. It's not your next-door neighbor whose dog barks at you all the time. It's, it's the devil. That's the real enemy. And Jesus recognized this, and he recognized those that Satan was working through. Look again what the Bible says in John chapter 7, verse 1. The Bible says, after these things. Well, this was after Jesus' crowd got smaller. Remember John chapter 6, verse 66, after Christ had begun to lay out what the real life of a disciple looked like. The Bible says in verse number 66 that from that time, many of his disciples, they went back and they, they walked with him no more. And so his crowd got really small, really quick. Well, six months have passed since then because we know now it's the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles to take place. And we know the dating of that uh, from, from God's Word. And so it, it was time for, for the Jews to, to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of, of Booths. And so six months have happened. Six months he's been ministering in Galilee. And the rulers of the Jews, they wanted him dead. Again, look at the Bible says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. He did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews, they sought to kill him. And now these are the Pharisees. These are the Sadducees. Well, why is it that they wanted to kill him? Well, because, friend, listen, they knew that he knew that they were fakes and they were frauds. Everybody else didn't have that figured out, but they knew that he knew that. They knew that the words he was speaking were truth. They knew that when he shared something about them, it's exactly the way that it was. And just like Jeroboam didn't want to give up his kingdom, and so he kept the two golden calves, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't want to give up their kingdom. The people were dependent upon them, and they didn't want them to be dependent upon Christ. And so they hated him, and they wanted to, to kill him. Well, all of this really began with John the Baptist ministry. You know, and John is, he's one of my heroes. John just told it exactly the way it was. He never tried to win person of the year. All he wanted to do was to be faithful to the one who had sent him. And so when he began his ministry, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, you know, John, John really shows you, you know, how to greet visitors to your service. So he's there baptizing, and he looks about, and he sees they have some guests in the crowd. Um, that day and you know and someone says hey you know we, we have some visitors today and john says oh yeah that's the pharisees and the sadducees and the bible says in verse number seven of matthew uh, uh chapter three but when he saw many of the pharisees and sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come therefore bear fruits worthy 
of repentance. And not think to say, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham, even from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, who is he talking about? He's talking about them. They, they had this perception that they wanted people to believe that they were bearing spiritual fruit. But John, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through him, he said, you're just a brood of snakes. That's the only good you are. He said, if you've really repented, bear fruit worthy of repentance. Really show that you're all in for God. And so he gave no warm welcome to these people whatsoever. Well, after John had been imprisoned, and John was suffering, and John's mind began, so he began to question, was Jesus really running on schedule the way that he, he needed to? And Matthew chapter 11, verse number 9, Jesus speaks now, and, and listen, confirms and even uh, lifts up the ministry and approval of John the Baptist. So therefore, everything he'd said about Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, but what did you go out to see, a prophet? I say to you more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, listen, there is not born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus said, this is the greatest preacher that's ever lived. Therefore, everything that he said was exactly right. And so when John the Baptist said that the Pharisees and Sadducees, stay with me, who were wanting to kill Jesus, were just a bunch of spiritual snakes, then that's exactly the way that it was. Jesus, he recognized that. Matthew chapter 12, and in verse number 24, the Bible says that the Pharisees began to hear of Jesus' ministry and the healing that took place. And Matthew records that when the Pharisees heard, heard it, that, that, that miracles had taken place, healing had taken place, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, except by the devil, the ruler of the demons. So that was what the Pharisees were saying about Jesus, is well, the power that this guy works by, it's only by the devil. And then Jesus began to say about them. He says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven by men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. They were sinning against the witness of the Holy Spirit that was saying, that's God's Son. This is the promised one. The one the prophets said was going to come, this is him. And they said, no, it's not. And the reason why is because it didn't fit their package. It didn't fit the direction that they wanted to go. And so Satan was trying to work through the Pharisees and the Sadducees to hurt the ministry of Christ and to diminish his impact upon the world. And, and that's why in, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus continued to speak against them. They were so concerned that his disciples hadn't washed their hands before they ate. And it's a good thing to wash your hands. And Jesus wasn't saying you didn't need to wash your hands. He says, but you need to be more concerned about the defilement that's on the inside. They were, they were more concerned about ceremonial purity rather than a real spiritual purity that can only take place through the righteousness of Christ being imputed to your life. And so sum it all up, John chapter 8 and verse number 44, Jesus just laid it out. 
about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Listen to what the Bible says. He says, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And Jesus said, and so, oh, by the way, all you Pharisees and Sadducees, you're his offspring. So Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were seeking to kill him. Not that he didn't have the power, friend. Uh, John chapter 19, verse number 11. Jesus wasn't afraid or powerless. No one had power over Christ unless it was given to him. Friend, on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels at any time. He could have killed every one of them. So that's not why he didn't go. He recognized that Satan was trying to work through them. And so Jesus gives a great example, friend, that in our life we need to realize that that we're going to have spiritual opposition. As you seek to live in the will of God, listen to me, you have an enemy who doesn't want you to experience that or be faithful to it. Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul detailed exactly who that person was. Several months ago, we did an entire study on the the armor of God. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He says, It's not the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's not the boss at work that hates you because of your faith. It's not the family member that makes fun of you because you're here at church this morning instead of up at Dollywood. It's, it's, it's not the people who, who try to, to make light of your commitment to Christ that are the real enemy. It is Satan who seeks to work through them. The real enemy against your soul is the devil. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Friend, if you're going to experience God's will, number one, you have to know it, but to live in it every day, you've got to recognize and to understand that you have a spiritual enemy against your soul and you are defenseless against him apart from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's only through God's word that you can be able to stand and can make a defense against that enemy. But you need to know the enemy and you need to know his intent for you. John 10, 10, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so you, you, need, to, you need to recognize fully the enemy that's against you. Secondly, Jesus shows us that we need to refuse worldly wisdom. So Jesus recognized, first off, there was an enemy, Satan trying to work through the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he stayed for six months ministering in Galilee. But why did he do that? It was God's will. But he recognized the enemy. But secondly, he refused worldly wisdom. Look what the Bible says in John chapter 7 and verse 2. Now the feast of the the feast of tabernacles was at hand. Again, Leviticus chapter 26, you can write in the margin of your Bible. It details things that were to happen in that. Just summarizing it, it was kind of a it was like a fall festival, so to speak. It was a harvest celebration. It would take place kind of in their their fall, as far as harvest took place. But most of all, it commemorated when the people lived in booths, as it were, in little tents during their pilgrimage before they crossed over. They would come to Jerusalem. There'd be all kinds of 
sacrifices and celebrations, but they would set little, it's kind of like a homecoming. They would set little booths up outside, and they'd live in them for, for the week. I guess it would be the original tailgating, so to speak, you know, when people come to the stadium before the, the game starts. So they would camp in these booths for a whole week. It was, it was a big deal for the nation of Israel. And his brothers, you know, began to say, you know, hey, verse number three, his brothers said to him, you need to depart from here and you need to go up to Judea. And you might not know this. He said, wait a minute, brothers, you talking about like brothers in Christ? No, these were paternal, well, half paternal brothers. Jesus had brothers that were, were half to him. Listen to what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 through 25. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Now that's different for us. We get engaged, but in the Jewish culture, they became betrothed. It was a legal binding marriage. But listen, if you can hear my voice, say amen. What had not happened yet in the betrothal period is they had not consummated that marriage. They had not yet become one flesh. And so for an entire year to prove the, the young woman's chastity, they would be betrothed. They were as good as being married, but that one part of a marriage that God gave, that had not yet taken place. They had not consummated that yet. And so Joseph uh, has a problem. He doesn't understand what's happened. Mary is now pregnant. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, they came together. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. How did Jesus come? The Holy Spirit of God overshadowed Mary, and immediately she was with child. Nothing sensual, nothing crazy. It's just the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and Jesus was in her womb. That's exactly the way that it happened. But, but she's betrothed to Joseph. He doesn't understand. Who's she been with? When did, this, when did this happen? She's with child. Some man had to have been with her. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and began to speak to him. He says, don't be afraid. It's no man's. It's straight from God. This is the one. And so Joseph, by faith, believed. Jesus was born. But now listen to what Matthew chapter 1, verse 25 says. And Joseph did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn. There's a religious denomination that believed that Mary stayed a virgin. Well, she didn't have any children if she, I mean, did everybody have biology? So she didn't stay on the Bible says he didn't know her till she had brought forth her firstborn child. And then they began to, to be a normal married family. And so, and in God's will, she had children. The Bible says here, these are the brothers of Christ in John chapter 7. And so, they began to give Jesus some, some, some wisdom. Can you imagine, friend, think about that. Men come to Jesus to tell him what he needs to do. Isn't that something? And so, he, his brothers therefore said to him, man, you need to, get, you need to depart from here. Look at the text. And go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing, he says, they say, you need a bigger audience. That's what you need. You know, Jesus, you're, you're not marketing yourself properly. You know, you're down here in Galilee, but the people are going to be up there at the feast. Man, you, you, need to, you need to broaden your audience so more people can see these things. So you don't need to be here. You need to be there. 
Why was Jesus in Galilee? Because that's where God wanted him to be. And so here his brothers come and say, no, you don't need to be here. Because wisdom says you need to be where all the people are. So you need to depart from here, and you need to go to Judea. That's where all the disciples are. Look at verse number 4. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. You know, as, as if they understood what God's plan was. He says, you're, you're down here in Galilee. Nobody sees you. you. You need to go on up to Jerusalem. I mean, look, Jesus, get a clue, man. Don't you understand? You, you must be the slowest one in the family. Even we know that if we want to get a following, we got to go to where the people are, man. And so that, that was the worldly wisdom. Look what the Bible says in verse number 5. For even his brothers did not yet believe in him. What was the source of all their wisdom? Right here. Them. That's, that's where they were getting all this from. The source of their wisdom was themselves. You know, I've shared this statement before, you know, that you know, some, this lost preacher wouldn't know God if he met him in the road. Well, listen, they wouldn't know God if he'd lived under their house, for, under their roof for 30 years, because he had. Jesus had lived with them. For, this wasn't the first day that they met him. They grew up with him. They ate at the same table. They worked in the same workshop. They knew there was something different about him. They saw there was something different about him, but they still did not exercise faith that this was the promised one. They were still operating by the world's wisdom. They, they, they just didn't know. And so that's one of the problems. I don't want to get off my text, but I just want to say, for just, that's one of the problems of growing up with Jesus. There's a whole message in that. These boys had grown up with Jesus, but yet they didn't know him. Now, I will say again from my heart, every parent and every grandparent, we, we, have, we have killed the church in the South by trying to teach children how to be good church members. And so they grow up with Jesus, and they're just accustomed. You know, they come to church with Jesus. He's in the Bible school, and he's in, he's in the Awana lesson. But they never, and so they just see Jesus as a person that we sing about and we talk about and we read about in church. And so they become accustomed. They grow up with Jesus, but they never personally receive him to be Lord of their life. That's one, of the, that's one of the dangers of just growing up. And that's what they had done. They'd just grown up with Jesus. Oh, that's just my brother Jesus. No, friend, that was God in human flesh. And they'd missed it. It's entirely possible to drag a kid to church and for them never to experience Christ as Lord of their life. It doesn't matter, friend, ultimately, if someone comes to church and learns how to be a good church member, if they die and go to hell. And so the, the number one the number one focus is always to be to introduce people to Jesus as he is that they might receive him to be king of kings and Lord of their life. And so that's the danger of growing up. Their, their advice, all that they had, it was based solely upon worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom. God had a will for Christ's life. He was living in that will. And here come these wise guys. Say, now, Jesus, you're not where you need to be, man. You need to maximize your potential. You're not being your best you. you. Listen, you need to turn your scars into stars, and you need to make your way to Jerusalem and show yourself. Friend, I want to warn you, you need to be very careful about the counsel you heed regarding salvation and discipleship. You need to be very careful because 
God has people he wants to speak through, but just exactly like that, friend, you better hear me. There's a, there's, there are people that the devil wants to speak through into your life. And his sole desire is to steal, to kill, and to destroy. You know, the world has something to say about salvation. Paul, Paul wrote about that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. At verse number 18, Paul said this, listen, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To, to the Greek mind, the, the fact that anything could be accomplished through a Jewish carpenter dying on the cross in, in the world's mind is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Listen to what God says about worldly wisdom. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Isaiah chapter 29, 37. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. God, Paul says, where's the wise? Where, where are all these wise guys that have all this, this wisdom to impart to people about how to better their life? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know where they were? They're burning in hell because they wouldn't respond to the gospel. Verse 21 says, For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Listen to verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And Brent, I'm telling you, just as sure as my name's Chad, and yours is what it is, the devil has people he wants to speak through to impart worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom of what you need to do with your life and your time. And I promise you, my friend, if you yield to it, it will get you out of God's will. And Jesus recognized this, those, those who were speaking to him. The, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man are always going to be at odds. They never complement one another. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse number 9. God says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You can't intermingle the two. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and, and verses 7 through 8. The, the Bible says these words, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's a worldly mind. For, it's, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He says worldly advice will never please God, and God will never honor worldly advice. Rather, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is, to have your mind renewed by God's Word and by God's Spirit, that He might impart His perfect will for your life, and you can continue there in it. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your path. Not, not man's wisdom, but, but God's wisdom, he'll direct your path. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse number 5 and verse number 15. The Bible says, listen to this. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel, God's counsel, is wise. I want to read that again. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Wise. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end of its ways is death. Worldly wisdom always leads to death. 
The thief comes but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. That's what worldly wisdom will get you, friend. You need to be very careful, and you need to recognize that the devil wants to work through individuals, through people you listen to on the, the radio, TV hosts, Oprah and the like, preachers that wouldn't know God again if they met him in the road or he lived under their house because their ministry is not grounded in his word. You need to be careful. You need to realize any wisdom that is not grounded in God's word is worldly wisdom. It's worldly wisdom. And so Jesus recognized this, refuse worldly wisdom. And that's what, that's what Jesus did. He, he, he wasn't going to give in to it. Number three, if you want to continue to live in the will of God, number three, you have to relinquish your will to God's control. Relinquish your will to God's control. Not my life but his life through me. Friend, that's what the Christian life is all about. Listen to me. It's not you living for Jesus. The successful Christian life is not you living through Jesus. Listen to me. It's Christ living his life through you. That's the successful Christian life. We get out of the way, and he lives his life through us. Look what the Bible says in verse number 6. Now it was time for Jesus to speak. They've given him all this great advice. Then Jesus... And I've often wondered, you know, did, did Jesus smile when he was listening to him? Did he, start, you know, did he start laughing or was it hard for him not to laugh? I don't know. But, but he was listening to all this wisdom. You know, these people were telling Jesus how he needed to live his life. And he said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Remember Galatians 4, 4 says that in the full, when, when, did, when did Jesus come? You know, from Genesis 3.15, when God had first revealed to Adam his plan that he had before Adam ever was of what Jesus was going to do on the cross, from that time until Jesus came and was born on that first Christmas morning, people had to say, well, why has God not done this yet? Why, when's, when's the Messiah coming? And, and why, did, why did Jesus come at that very moment? Because it was the time God wanted it to happen. And it was the perfect time. Galatians 4, 4 says, Christ came, don't miss this, in the fullness of time. It was God's will for Christ to be born at that moment. Jesus was always living on the Father's timetable and not his. Never. It was never about what he wanted to do. Don't you listen to me. If Jesus would have had a calendar, God would have filled it out for him. He didn't say, you know, today I'm going to do this. Now, I think I'm going to do this on this day. And I'm going to go, no, friend, it was always what the Father wanted to do through him. His life was always submitted to the will of the Father. Why? Because he had relinquished his will to God's control. That's what Philippians 2 is all about. That's what Paul was saying, the wonder of all that. That Christ set aside all that glory that was his to come to this sin-cursed earth, to be shamed, despised, be obedient, even to death, the death upon the cross. And he says, let this mind be in you also that was in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2.5. He says, my time has not yet come. She says, do you want to know the reason I'm not in Jerusalem? Because that's not where God wants me to be. My time has not yet come. He says, the, the, the world can't hate you, verse number four, seven. I, I like that he ties that straight to what he said in verse number six. He says, but now your time is always ready. 
What do you mean by that? He says, you can go to Jerusalem anytime you want to because that's how you live your life. By what you want to do. It's never about what God wants you to do. It's what you want to do. As I've shared many times, that's Scotty Row Art 316. People are going to do whatever people want to do. And I've discovered that in ministry. You be, I mean, people who are not fully committed to Christ, they're going to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. And there's nothing anybody in church or family can do about it. You can't shame them enough. You can't talk to them enough because people are going to do whatever they want to do. Why? Because their time is always ready. Jesus said, my time's not yet come. God doesn't want me to go to Jerusalem yet. Therefore, that's why I'm not in Jerusalem. He says, you can go anytime you want because you're the one that's calling the shots for your life. Look at verse 7. He says, the world cannot hate you. Why? Because you're just like them. He said, the world loves its own. He said, you're, you're exact, you, just, you blend in. You're, you're exactly like them. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Remember two, two powerful statements that Nathan the prophet made in our studies through 2 Samuel. We're beginning Ezra this week, but we six years ago, going in our seventh year, we started in Genesis 1, and now we're just beginning... Um, Ezra 1, this, this coming Wednesday night. We've preached all the way up through that, verse by verse, word by word on Wednesday nights. And we'll just keep moving along. But remember, you know, when, when Nathan the prophet came to David, when sadly he had sinned with Bathsheba, and he was trying to hide all that. He killed her husband Uriah. And Nathan, full of the Holy Spirit, came to him and gave him this story. And David said, man, we need to, we need to kill that guy that did this evil thing. And you remember the, the, that powerful statement. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he says, he says, David, he says, you're the man. You're the man. That's you. What, what a powerful statement, 2 Samuel 12, 7. Well, there was also another powerful statement five chapters before that. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 3. And, and it's, it's, it's a statement that sadly is used, not pulpits, but from little chairs where guys sit in their skinny jeans Sunday after Sunday. They quote this as the word of God. Nathan, David wanted to do something that was outside of God's will. And Nathan says, go do the, all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. He says, David, what do you have a heart to do? Well, I want to build. Then whatever's in your heart, you go do it. And God's going to be, God's going to be with you. Because God loves you. That's what he told him. Remember that, listen, that is being thundered softly from little stools in dark buildings all across our nation, even as I speak right now. And friend, it's completely contrary to the Word of God. The disciple who has fully submitted his life to Jesus Christ wants nothing other but what God wills him to do. What he wills him to do. Not what's in his heart. You can't know what's in your heart. And Satan can put something in your heart. But everything that God gives, friend, it leads to life and life more abundantly. It always does. And so in order to stay in God's will, you've got to relinquish your will to God's control. That's why Jesus says in verse number 8, he says, you, you go on up to the feast. You go on. You go on. You know, you're giving me this advice. This is what I need to do. Well, you just go on. 
says, you, you abide by that doctrine because you're going to do whatever it is you want to do. And the reason they were going to do whatever they wanted to do, listen, was because God wasn't Lord of their life. He wasn't. Just like the ones in John chapter 6, verse 66 that turned back. When Jesus said, listen, if you're really going to be my disciple, you're going to eat my flesh and you're going to drink my blood. Not physically, but spiritually. He says, my life is going to overshadow yours. You're not going to have a life anymore, and I'm going to live my life through you. And when they heard what it really meant to be a disciple and what lordship really looked like, they turned away and says, no, we're going to go. I think we'll go over here now. Well, let's go over here. Oh, I heard there's a new teacher over here. So they, they burned their hashtag Jesus T-shirt, and then they went and began to follow the next Joe, whoever it was, the some, next some great somebody, because that's what they wanted to do, but not Jesus. Listen, he had relinquished control of his life to God. Powerful passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Many believe that maybe this was said the, the night before Christmas, but listen to what the author of Hebrews writes about a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Therefore, when he came into the world, that is Jesus, when he came to the world, he said to the Father, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. Why did he come? He came to die. He came to drink my sin and to drink your sin. That's why he came. He says, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written me, listen, to do your will, O God. That's what sustained Jesus, was doing the will of God. And he was obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death on the cross at Calvary. Why? Because he loved you and he loved me. But greater than that, friend, he loved the Father. He was obedient to his will. And you're never going to experience God's best, friend, until you've relinquished your life completely. Not, part, not 99%, not 99.1%, not 99.2%, till you've relinquished 100% control of your life and suffer whatever the consequences are, you'll never experience God's best. You're not going to daily live in his will. You, you will not do what you've not submitted to. You will not do what you've not submitted to. And until you've submitted your will to God's will, you'll never do what it is that he's called you to do. And then number four, if you're going to live in God's will every day, listen, you have to resolve to be flexible. You've got to resolve to be flexible. And we're a lot of things here at Greenwood, but we share this. But one thing we are, church family, is we're what? We're flexible. You know, whatever happens, that's just the way we like it. Throw us a monkey wrench, we'll work with it, right? Well, that's a lot of enthusiasm this morning, I'll tell you. I'm, I'm sure our guests are really, they're like, why did we come here this morning? They, but you're never going to live daily in the will of God if you don't resolve to be flexible. Notice, notice what happened. So verse number 9, when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. They went up, verse 10 says. But when his brothers had gone, so he remained... And they went up. Now, for most people, they just down and say, well, Galilee's where I'm going to live and die. Go buy a house, build a farm. You know, just going to stay here, raise generations of people right here in Galilee. Not Jesus. That might have been God's will. 
I mean, we know ultimately it wasn't, but I'm saying, but for a person that might be God's will, but it may not be. This is the point. Just because God called you to do something today doesn't mean that's what his will is going to be for tomorrow. If you're going to stay in God's will, you've got to be flexible, and you've got to be leadable. Look what happened. When his brothers had gone up, Jesus said, I'm not going, I'm staying in Galilee, verse 9. But when his brothers had gone, then he went up to the feast. He also went up. But not openly, but as it were, secret. And we're going to see some truths in that next week. But don't miss this. His, his brothers say, you need to go up there. He says, it's not time for me to go up there. But then when they departed, God said, now it's time for you to go. Do you see the point? He didn't just say, well, what you called me to five minutes ago is the way it's always going to be. He was constantly being led by the will of the Father. If it had been God's will that he remained, that's what he does. But now that it was God's will, that he go? I rarely ever ask you to do this, but turn with me this morning to the book of Acts chapter 8. I want to share with the most, the most perfect illustration that I think you can find in all of Scripture. Acts chapter 8 about being flexible, resolving to be flexible as we live in the will of God. Very quickly, verse number 4 of Acts chapter 8 says, Therefore, when those were scattered, uh, persecution had hit the church, they went everywhere preaching the word because that's what God had told them to do. Jesus had told them. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Uh, Acts 1, 8, you're to be my witnesses. And that's what they were doing. And the devil thought he was stamping out the church by beating their fire you know, with his fork, pitchfork, but all it did was like beating a brush fire. Look, it just sent the embers out and sent them out as burning, flaming evangelists. Well, it, Philip landed in Samaria. Verse number 5 says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he preached Christ to them. Now notice this. And multitudes, with one accord, he did the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. I mean, man, people are coming to Christ. A church is being born. And, and for that day, it was a mega church. I mean, people were really responding to the gospel. But then something happened. Even after, uh, you know, uh, Peter comes and they face challenges and, and hardship. And in the midst of that, God just continues to glorify himself. But in the midst of all of that growth, look at verse number 26 of Acts chapter 8. Now... God had sent Philip to Samaria. Hundreds had been saved. The church was planning. And listen, and the angel of the Lord one morning spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, go south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. He didn't say, but God, you sent me here to Samaria. I mean, and there's, there's a mega church that's planning. I mean, people are being saved. You, it was your will for me to come here. I'm having much success. Therefore, I must be in your will. This can't be what God's calling me to do. There's no way that God could be calling me from what the world calls a success. You know, friend, listen. The world sees a church as success when it's got, you know, bodies, bucks, and buildings. You know, lots of bodies, lots of bucks, and a big building or a new one. That's success in the world's eyes. But friend, that doesn't impress God any, any of those. None of them. And so he thinks, boy, this is, this is really something. But Philip, he doesn't argue. Look what verse number 20 says. So he arose and he went. He arose and he went. Not even knowing where he was going. God said, leave this place, go to the next. 
How did that happen? Because, friend, listen, he was, he was flexible. He, he, had, he had resolved to be flexible. God, whatever it is you want me to do today, I'm going to do it. Even if everybody else thinks I'm nuts, even if my family thinks I'm nuts, the rest of the church thinks I'm nuts. If it doesn't contradict your word, and you're giving me peace that passes all understanding, God, I'm going to do it. And so he, he arose and he went. And so, and so, you know, most people are like, well, man, there must be a, if, if he's such a success, there must be a bigger church out there in the desert. You know, a resort maybe by an oasis. Woo! I mean, God's going to do something through him. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch. God sent him to one man who the Holy Spirit had called searching. He had a passage of Scripture from Isaiah he couldn't understand, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, because a natural man perceives not the things of God, neither can he know them for their foolishness to him because they're spiritually discerned. But Philip knew what it meant. And he sat down beside him and he preached Jesus to him. He shared the gospel. He left multitudes to go share the gospel with one. And all of the world and all the church growth experts that know nothing if it's not grounded in the world, would have said, Philip, you can't do that. You've got, you've got this great budding church, but the Spirit said, go! So Philip went, and he went because he was flexible. And heaven only will share, friend, what God did through the ministry of that little Ethiopian eunuch as he took the word back to where he was. There are going to be times in your life that God's going to call you to do something that everybody else that stands on the sidelines that's not growing in Christ is going to think you're nuts for doing. But if you're going to stay in God's will, listen, you've got to, you've got to resolve to be flexible. And I don't have a, you know, a long plan that I've laid out. Tomorrow has non-negotiables that God has written, but the specifics are up to Him to lead, guide, and direct. You've got to have that heart and that kind of of attitude. And, and, and the Bible says that, that later he moved on from there and, and he began to preach from city to city to city to city and he ended up in Caesarea. And he became an evangelist. Acts chapter 21 verse 8 says that Paul lodged with Philip the evangelist in his house in Caesarea. Well, did he settle? Did he quit following God? No. That's where God planted him and that's where he stayed. He ended up being a blessing to Paul later on. Friend, I'm here this morning, I want to tell you this. If you've never been saved, you can't begin to discover God's will until you, you, you step into the first part of God's will, and that's to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9. God's will is that you repent and trust Christ to be Lord of your life. That's His first will for you, that you turn from sin and trust Him to be Lord of your life. Not join a church, not be baptized, not turn over a new leaf, start a new Bible study, but be born again through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, you're out of the will of God. But you can get in the will of God if you'll simply turn and trust Him right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. No one's moving about. Church family, you're praying. Won't you do that? I want to ask you a question. Listen to me. If you died today, are you 100% certain you'd go to heaven? Bible says in 1 John 5, 13, you can know. You can know. You can have certainty that your sins have been forgiven and you've been saved because of what's written in God's Word. These things are written that you might know. 
Has there ever been a singular moment in your life truly where the Spirit of God convicted you of your lostness, called you and drew you to the side of Christ, and you've, you trusted in Jesus to be Lord of your life, believing that He died for you and that He rose again, and you surrender your life you surrendered your life to his lordship. And you, sh you, you shared that desire in a simple prayer of faith, maybe just, like, maybe just like this. God, forgive me a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus died for me, rose again. Be king and lord of my heart. Is there ever a time where you, where you repent and you prayed a prayer like that from your heart, not your head? If not, friend, you're lost. But you can be saved. And you can be born again if you'll only trust him now. Are you willing to do all those things, repent, trust Him, surrender your life to His Lordship? Then tell Him so right now. In a simple prayer of faith where you sit like this. God, forgive me of my sin. I'm a sinner. I turn from it. I believe Jesus died. I believe Jesus rose again. And I'm stepping off the throne of my heart. It's no longer me and mine, but it's thee and thine. You come live in my heart, God, and you be Lord of my life. That's my prayer today. Did you pray that? Did you mean it? I'm going to stand here at just the front, in the front in just a minute. We're all going to stand to our feet in just a few moments. And if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, I want to invite you to step into one of these aisles and come where I'm at and say, hey, I prayed that prayer because I want to share what God wants to do next, what the next part of his will is for your life. As a disciple of Christ, would you be honest before God today? Listen, have thee and thine, when you pray, been replaced by the reality of me and mine? Is it God's will that's being lived out or your will that's being lived out? Oh, friend, resubmit your life to his lordship today. He loves you. He has the best plan for your life, better than you can ever come up with. But you'll never experience it if you're not daily living in his will. If these marks that Christ lived out by example are not a reality in your life, lay your life at Christ's feet again today and let them become one as you live out his will. And he lives it through you as you yield yourself to him. Father, you speak to your church. You know every single individual need across this building. God, you know every heart, every life, you know what needs to be fixed, what's broken. And God, you've got the plan to do it. Holy Spirit, speak to us, convict us, draw us, call us into your will. And God, I pray that we'll be faithful to respond to it. Someone's been saved, God, a long time ago, but they never followed you in believer's baptism. The first act of obedience in the life of a believer, God, would you remind them the truth of your word. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. They're living in a broken relationship with you till they get that dealt with. God challenges. I pray we'll leave here walking out of this place in the dead center of your will. It's in your name we pray. Let's reverently stand to our feet. Heads up.